only very recently thought of as impossible, the prospect of US-China decoupling is looking more probable by the day as the Trump administration ramps up its enforcement actions against Chinese businesses and investment. One area that has received plenty of US regulatory attention is exports of US technology to China, which the Trump administration fears will bolster China's military and technological capabilities. I'm Vincent Chow, a reporter at China Law & Practice and host of the China Law Podcast, a weekly podcast exploring China's business and financial sectors from a legal perspective. With me today to discuss new US measures targeting Chinese acquisition of sensitive US technology is Amanda DeBusk, chair of Deckert's Global International Trade and Government Regulation Practice based in Washington, D.C. In this episode, Amanda discusses the impact of these new rules on Hong Kong, China's military-civilian fusion, fears about Chinese involvement in core U.S. infrastructure, and much more. As you'll hear later, Amanda is a wealth of knowledge on these issues, in no small part due to her time as U.S. Commerce Department Assistant Secretary for Export Enforcement from 1997 to 2001. Amanda, welcome to the China Law Podcast. Thank you. Can you give a brief summary of the background for these new rules? What spurred them and which industries do they affect? Sure, I would be glad to do that. Um, these are very important rules and they're very wide ranging. They're very much focused on exports that would be going from the United States to China that could be used for military end use. They aren't targeted just at China. They also include Russia and Venezuela. And the real focus is on what is called the military-civilian fusion, where there's a coming together of projects and companies where it could be military or it could be civilian. And so this is really focused on those new developments. So the industries that are most affected would be like semiconductors, telecoms, software, electronics. It's very, very broad-ranging. And there's really several major parts to these regulations. Some of them go into effect immediately and others um, the government has asked for comments. So let me just walk through very quickly what the major categories are for these rules. Um, the first is a set of regulations that's very focused on the um, high-tech sector. And in that particular sector, the United States has relied on exporters to know their customers. And if it's civilian customers, then they could use what's known as a license exception, which means they didn't have to get a license from the government. So this license exception has been taken away. And so now for certain types of goods, semiconductors would be a good example. Um, they have to get a license. Um, a second category is targeted very much to military projects. And for this particular set of regulations, um, there's a long list of um, types of goods that are lower level types of goods, where if they're going for a military purpose, they couldn't be exported to uh, China. There used to only be 32 uh, products on this list, but they added 17 more. So this is a really big change, um, a 53% increase. And again, um, 
It covers a wide variety of types of products. The one that's most important probably would be um, something that would be called mass market um, encryption software. So it really is um, wide ranging and sort of recontrolling various types of software. Um, a third aspect of the regulations is what I mentioned, where that's a proposed regulation that doesn't go into effect, but where the government has asked for comments. And this one is really important for Hong Kong. Um, one of the things that the U.S. government does is it gives deference to many governments around the world, including Hong Kong, in terms of its own export licensing controls. And so if a good would go from the United States to Hong Kong, um, then it would be up to Hong Kong if at some point later on um, a company in Hong Kong wants to send that particular item onward into China. And it used to be that the U.S. would just grant deference um, automatically. Now the U.S. is saying, well, we're going to reconsider that rule in terms of whether we're going to grant automatic deference. And so that's where they've asked for comments. That's a brief overview. Okay, so let's walk through those one by one. As you mentioned, some of the rules are final, so they will come into effect in June, while there is a new proposed rule for which public comments are being solicited until June as well. So let's start with that one, which is very interesting, and you mentioned the importance of Hong Kong. Am I right in saying that this proposed rule puts the US at odds with its allies, given that you have the US effectively saying that it doesn't trust its allies to approve exports to China in a way that does not contravene U.S. national security interests. Uh, yes, that's very important. Um, the one about the deference, it applies not just to Hong Kong, but to uh, other countries as well. And so where the U.S. used to just give deference to other governments, the U.S. is not so willing to do so anymore. And so it's a little bit of this go-it-alone uh, unilateral strategy that you see overall that has morphed over into the export control area. So this is something that would be uh, very important. And I think it's really a reflection on how the uh, U.S. is viewing Hong Kong as more um, of an extension of China as opposed to a jurisdiction that can really meaningfully exercise its own independent authority. Right. But I guess the US isn't singling out Hong Kong, because it is also rescinding its deference to its European allies, such as the UK and Germany. Uh, that's correct. Uh, they've been very careful not to call out Hong Kong. Um, but certainly, I think it is the concern about goods going onward into to China that is really behind these regulations. So it's important to keep that in that context. Okay, so let's move on to the removal of the civilian exemption for exports to China, which is one of the finalized rules. With that, the practice right now is for companies to do their own due diligence to make sure their exports to China are being used for civilian purposes. Is that just something that can't be done anymore? That's a very good question, and you're right. This is uh, something where the U.S. government is not going to just let the companies do their due diligence anymore. Um, this would affect things like uh, semiconductor chip sensors. It would be 
covering parts that go into the aircraft and to the telecom industry. And for these items, it used to be that the U.S. would say, okay, U.S. company, just be sure you do your due diligence, you know your customer, you know how they're going to be using the items that you send to them. Now the U.S. is saying we don't trust the U.S. companies to undertake this task because we have more information than is available in the public sector about how some of these companies that you might normally consider uh, a civilian company would be using um, these particular goods. And so therefore, we want these U.S. companies to come to the U.S. government to get explicit permission before they can export uh, certain types of goods to these companies that might be large companies that do a combination of things that could be in the military or civilian sectors, given the fusion that's occurring. Uh, this is something that's been talked about for a number of years. And I think uh, what we're seeing here is that the concerns um, have become greater than they used to be in the past. Um, that really is a change. It's a less trusting sort of perspective than used to be the case. But some of the reports about this fusion of the civilian and military sector, um, they date back a number of years. Right. And China also included this military-civilian fusion initiative in its last five-year plan adopted in 2016. That's exactly right. It, it really dates back to that uh, five-year plan. Okay, so the other rule that was introduced has to do with the expanded prohibition on certain exports. You mentioned the figure of a 53% increase in the number of prohibited items. I wanted to ask about that because exports for military end-use to China has always been restricted. But under the new rules, exports to military end-users for ostensibly civilian purposes those exports will also be restricted now. So, for example, if the Chinese military wants to import some American equipment for a hospital, those will now be restricted. Uh, yes, that's exactly right. And um, this is um, quite a change because it would affect a lot of uh, lower-level type of items. In addition to increasing the list, uh, the U.S., government changed the, the definition to sort of broaden the controls in that way as well. It used to be that you had to have something that was going directly for a military end use. And now the rule is that it covers things going to support for a military end use. And that's a new and somewhat ambiguous uh, requirement, because if you say it's something that could be used to support a military end use, it covers a lot more territory than if it's something that is going directly to a military end use. Um, and your example of a hospital is a really good example. Um, in the past, if there's a piece of equipment that's going into a hospital that's a fairly common type of testing machine, um, it could certainly go into the military hospital in, in China, just like it could go into any other hospital. But now the fact that it's a military hospital means that the equipment could not go there. And 
it would be something that would be uh, quite a sea change in terms of the number of goods that are impacted by this. Um, the idea is if it's going into a hospital, the hospital is used by everyone. It could be uh, associated with all sorts of civilian and military um, uses. But now there's just a concern that uh, they don't want a hospital that's purely military to have um, even low-level U.S. goods in it. So these new rules, they don't ban exports of these U.S. tech and goods to China. The government is now just requiring these exports to be licensed. Is it the same level of difficulty as for a U.S. company who wants to do business with Huawei, which the U.S. placed on the entity list last year, where, yes, in theory, you can try to be licensed to be doing business with Huawei, but in practice, it's actually very difficult? The licenses are always time-consuming. And in terms of how difficult they are or are not to get depends on the specifics of the transaction. From the U.S. exporter perspective, one of the concerns is that whenever you have to go in and get a license, it creates delays for a transaction. So you would have to build in you know, 30, 60, 90 days um, of delay, even if you had a particular um, transaction that you thought the U.S. government was likely to approve. So just the fact of the delay creates problems. Now, the possibility that you would get a license in these areas is greater than it would be for the Huawei-type situation because Huawei was specifically targeted and added to the entity list. Whereas for these, they don't involve any targeted companies. It's a more general type of requirement. Mm. So then the dilemma facing U.S. exporters will surely be whether it's worth it to continue exporting to Chinese clients, given the additional time and effort required. Maybe it's better to just find clients elsewhere. Um, the point you raise is uh, really a good one. And this is something that is of concern in um, the U.S. business community. Because whenever there's complications and risks and, pos and delays for a U.S. supplier, then perhaps the Chinese company would rather turn to a non-U.S. supplier. That's just how business works. So there would be a concern that this could lead to a lessening of the commercial relationships that are already in place just because it would impose additional delays and potential risks of not having a license issued um, for the Chinese companies. Um, it also increases the, the due diligence uh, obligations for U.S. companies because now they have to think about, well, is their product something that could be used in support of the military somehow. So this is a new question that they have to ask and that they have to think about. And again, if it's not a question that they could easily answer, then perhaps they shy away and say, you know, I'm just not going to take the risk and time and effort of sorting all this out. And I am not going to pursue that particular line of business. Yes, and the worrying thing is that we can expect to see more of these restrictions moving forward. 
That's right. I think that is certainly the, the trend is more restrictions as opposed to less restrictions. Uh, perhaps I'll mention two of the other areas that we're following where there might be restrictions in the future. One has to do with what is called the de minimis rule. And this is where the United States asserts jurisdiction over products that have 25% U.S. content. Um, there's talk about changing this rule so that if it has even less U.S. content, it would still be subject to U.S. jurisdiction. And that's something that's really important because many advanced products are made using parts from all around the world. So this would be another way of um, asserting U.S. jurisdiction in a broader way. A second way that the U.S. is thinking about asserting jurisdiction more broadly is by um, thinking of a new rule that says, well, if it's a product made using U.S. technology, we're going to assert jurisdiction. The U.S. does that in a very limited way now, and so the talk is that the authorities might um, expand the reach of U.S. jurisdiction in, in this particular way. Right, and this is a reflection of the U.S. dominance in various high-tech sectors. So, for example, the U.S. doesn't just dominate in terms of semiconductor chips. It also dominates in the technology underlying the production of these chips and the equipment needed to make these chips. For this reason, semiconductor suppliers around the world typically use U.S. technology and equipment to make their chips, such as this one Taiwanese chip maker, which has been in the news a lot recently because it supplies chips to Huawei. And so you can see why there's talk of the U.S. possibly introducing these new measures, because it wants to try to choke Huawei from its global supply of chips, not just its U.S. supply. Uh, yes, um, the case study that you mentioned is the one that is talked about most frequently in this regard in terms of why changes in this rule are, are needed. Some view the way that the rule is currently limited as something of a loophole in the, the regulations, and it's considered by some to be a loophole that needs to be plugged. Okay, so if we zoom out a little bit now and look at another recent development, it has to do with Chinese involvement in core infrastructure in the U.S. That's right. As one is always looking ahead at what is the next uh, targeted area, uh, it certainly looks like it could be equipment that goes into the electrical grid in the United States. There is a new uh, executive order that targets transactions that would involve the supply of Chinese goods that are going into the grid. And it's certain types of goods that are enumerated um, that are used in the electrical grid. Uh, as follow-up to that, there's a new investigation. It's called a 232 investigation to be conducted by the Commerce Department. And that investigation also is looking at different types of products that go into the electrical grid. Um, it was that action, the 232 investigation, that resulted in higher tariffs on steel and aluminum. So this would be a way of uh, further ratcheting up tariffs on certain types of um, infrastructure that goes into the electrical grid. Right. And I guess this really shows how multifaceted U.S. efforts are to tackling its concerns and problems with China. Because, you know, as we all know, the U.S. isn't 
just targeting Chinese acquisition of U.S. technology. It's also imposed billions of dollars worth of trade tariffs. It's ramped up its scrutiny of Chinese investment in the U.S. through CFIUS, which reviews foreign investment into the U.S. And also the new developments you mentioned, uh, which are part of the U.S. growing scrutiny of Chinese involvement in core U.S. infrastructure. So you really get a sense of how the U.S. is approaching this from many different angles. That's exactly right. It's a very, very broad-ranging initiative. And it's really part of, you know, the the view that the economy of the U.S. has been too integrated with the Chinese economy, and that there should be more U.S. ability to maintain、uh, manufacturing in the U.S. to maintain all the critical items that are needed for the electrical grid. So it's a really broad-ranging national security-focused、um, movement. Are there concerns about potential retaliation by China? We saw earlier this year China came out with its new draft export control law, which will be the first unified national legislation regarding export controls. How worried are you about possible reciprocal actions from the Chinese government? I think all the trade lawyers anticipate that there. Are Are reciprocal actions by the Chinese government? Sometimes those are not through regulations, but they're more a little bit more under the radar in terms of difficulties in the import process, difficulties in getting, you know, various government approvals. So certainly there is concern about the broader government regulatory、uh, regime、um, in China, but it's. Also, a, a broader concern. Do you have any general advice to either a U.S. or Chinese business worried about the way things are trending, and you know they might be worried about how they should navigate this uncertain and very volatile period in U.S.-China relations?、Um, my advice would be to follow the the rules.、Uh, be sure they're doing everything they need to for compliance. And also, just to keep an eye on the U.S. political situation, we have an election coming up, and you never know what changes might transpire、um, after the election. It could be that the rules become even more difficult, or it could be that there's more of a tilt towards、uh, multilateralism. So there's a, a lot that's in play. So, I would say follow the rules and、uh, keep an eye on the future. Thank you so much, Amanda. Sure, thank you. And thank you for listening to the China Law Podcast, a weekly discussion of China's business and financial sectors from a legal perspective. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review if you're enjoying what we're doing. It would help us immensely. Make sure to subscribe to our website, ChinaLawInPractice.com, to keep up to date with the latest Chinese legal and business news through our in-depth features and analyses from our network of leading lawyers and in-house counsel, including extensive coverage of U.S.-China relations and legal developments, as well as full access to a searchable database of English full translations of PRC legislation going back 33 years. We'll be back next week with Mark Schwab from KWM to discuss China's autonomous cars industry. Stay tuned and thanks again for listening.